Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! In 1969, music writer Stanley Booth somehow talked his way on board the Rolling Stones' infamous American tour, ending at Altamont. And he didn't just live to tell the tale, he wrote the book on it. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Stanley Booth recalls the Stones at the height of their fame. And then we'll review new albums by Bjork and Lupe Fiasco. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later on in the show, Jim and I are going to review this new Bjork album. It's in contrast to her previous release, Biophilia, which was loaded with apps. It was a big multimedia rollout. It was almost as much about the presentation as it was the music. This one goes in the opposite direction, very stripped down, thematic record, just in time for Valentine's Day. It's about a breakup. But first, we've got some music news. Oh, won't you stay with me? Cause you're all I need. This ain't love, it's clear to see. But darling, stay with me. Greg, that's the tune Stay With Me by the young British soul singer Sam Smith. He was one of the top acts in the U.K. in 2014. But if that song sounds a little bit familiar, a court settlement has said it's because it is ripping off I Won't Back Down by Tom Petty. He wrote that song with Jeff Lynne. Sam Smith's reps have told Billboard that the singer was not previously familiar with that 1989 Petty Lynn song, but they acknowledge the similarity, and they are now going to give Petty and Lynn co-songwriting credit with Smith and the two songwriters he wrote that song with. However, Smith is up for Song of the Year for the Grammys for that tune. The Recording Academy has said, well, despite the amicable court settlement giving Petty and Lynn co-songwriting a credit, they won't win a statuette if Sam Smith claims the Song of the Year Grammy. Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is the Rolling Stones' classic 1969 track, Gimme Shelter. 
It's the opening song from their album Let It Bleed, and it also provides the name of Albert and David Maisel's concert film, which documents part of the Stones' 1969 tour, which ended at the infamous concert in Northern California at the Altamont Speedway. A fan, Meredith Hunter, was stabbed and beaten to death on camera by members of the Hells Angels after they realized that he was armed and approaching the stage. Last month marked 45 years since Altamont, and there to witness that horrific event and the entire tour was Stanley Booth. He recounts that era in his book, The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, which was just re-released on its 30th anniversary. And Greg, one of the few things I think we agree about is this is one of the greatest rock books of all time, almost novelistic in the quality of its prose. Novelistic, but yet not a novel. The best of the new journalism, without a doubt, during that era. Uh, Which is why it's a treat to have Stanley with us now. Stanley Booth, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, Stanley, you were a witness to some heavy events during that 69 tour, that first major arena tour of the States by the Stones. And it's still mind-boggling to us the level of access you got to the band. I mean, I don't think it's something that would ever happen today. No, couldn't possibly. And I'm wondering how you found your way in, so to speak. I mean, from your work as a music writer in Memphis, you did have this relationship with a lot of the bluesmen and soul singers that uh, the Stones revered, people like uh, B.B. King and Otis Redding. Was that the connection? Tell us how you first got to know the Stones. I went to London in 1968. I was working for this uh, Hearst publication called I Magazine. It was kind of a kind of a ripoff of Rolling Stone, although it didn't look anything like Rolling Stone. And I met the Stones. Luckily, I met Ian Stewart first, and he called all the Stones and said, "There's this guy from Memphis in town, and you need to meet him." And um, uh, they had BB King's records. I could introduce them to B.B. I did introduce them to B.B. I introduced them to Booker White. I turned them on to Furry Lewis, my dear brother. They never thought of me as a writer. They just thought of me as another blues freak, mm-hmm. you know, which God knows I was. And so as a result, you get this uh, the, this deal to write the book. The band signs off on it, more or less. Right, um, absolutely. And, and you come into this incredible period of time in the band when all this change and turmoil was going on. Brian Jones was on the way out. Brian Jones dies during this period right July before this the big 3rd, tour. July the 3rd, 1969. What's your take on that? My phone rang like 4 o'clock in the morning, and I lay in bed and listened to it ring, and it rang like 25 times. <laughs> and I thought, well, uh, this may be serious. So I got up. I answered the phone. It was Joe Bergman, Georgia Bergman, the Stones' secretary, And she told me Brian had died. Brian and I were good friends. I didn't know Brian long enough for him to lie to me or steal from me or cheat me. And we got along beautifully. But, um, you know, I was just shocked beyond words. And then, of course, the Stones came back to America with little Mick Taylor. And um, I went to L.A. October the 19th, 1969. And... um, Joe and uh, Howard Hesseman, who was on WKRP in Cincinnati, uh, whom I'd met in London in 68, they picked me up, and I went to um, 1401 Oriole Drive, high above Sunset Boulevard in L.A., and Charlie and Shirley Watts were there, Bill Wyman and his girlfriend Astrid, and um, I was sitting there talking to them, and the back door opened, and in comes Mick and Keith, and Graham Parsons. 
and I, I had reviewed Graham's uh, Flying Burritos album, the first album, uh, for Rolling Stone. And he came in. I went up and introduced him. Graham and I were both from Waycross, Georgia. We went out, sat down by the edge, <clears throat> looking out over L.A., and I had a joint in my pocket that my friend Lee Baker had grown. And uh, so I lit the joint, and Graham and I are sitting there smoking this joint. And um, Keith comes out, and I handed him the joint, and he starts smoking it and starts back inside. And I said, Keith, wait a minute, please. <laughs> I mean, I was crazy. You know, I was trying to get these bastards to let me write a book about them. And, you know, here I'm I'm telling Keith, hey, don't bogart that joint, you know. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I was young and stupid. What can I tell you? But anyway, Keith very sweetly comes back, gives me the joint. And Graham and I sat there and absolutely bonded. Graham and I were such close friends. And I've been so lucky to have the friends I've had. I've just been so very, very lucky to have known the great spirits I've known. But did you know you were getting into this, you know, what what eventually turned out to be quite a tumultuous band? Did you know the level of it? I mean, the Brian Jones death must have been a little bit of a tip-off that not everything was ship-shape in, in this group, that there was a, a lot of volatility in it, and they were about to get bigger and, and, and therefore more under public scrutiny, and, you know, the, the level of drugs would, would, would continue that it was already starting to be. Uh, Stu, Ian Stewart, came by my office in London. One afternoon, we're sitting there talking, and um, we're talking about Keith and his drug consumption, and Stu said to me, you're as bad as he is, which I thought was a great compliment. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, you know, the Stones and I, we just, we met and we fell in love, and we're still in love. Our love was like the water Since we mentioned Jones, before we leave him and his death, uh, you know, I gather you spent a lot of time with his family, talking to his his surviving family members. Uh, uh, you said you were friends with him. What do people not understand about who that man was? Brian was not an easy person to understand. He was very sweet, really, at heart, but he could be very difficult. And uh, once he'd made up his mind to be difficult, he was extremely difficult. Throwing food, I mean, just doing crazy stuff. Keith and I took a lot of dope, God knows, but um, Brian was, he was really out of control. What happened to him? I don't think anybody killed him. He was just taking all this mandrax, which is the English uh, variety of quaaludes, mm -hmm. methoqualone. I think he just fell asleep in the, he had this pool, and I think he just fell asleep in the in the pool. Yeah. The glimpses of, of some of the other stones, uh, the image that has always stayed with me is the night before the Altamont concert, the stones walking through the seas and seas of blotted out fans, and Charlie Watts being very careful in his loafers not to step on anyone. You call him in the book the politest man in the world. Well, I love Charlie, and 
people would ask me, who's your favorite Rolling Stone? And I always say, Shirley Watts. Because <laughs> Charlie's wife, Shirley, was just, she was like Charlie, deadly honest and, you know, a no-nonsense person. And how, how and, many, they've uh, been married for like, what, going on 50 years, right? Yeah. They're just, they're the greatest people in the world. I love them both dearly. You know, Mick and Keith and I went out, everybody else was asleep, and Mick and Keith and I went out to Altamont to check it out. And Keith stayed out there. Mick and I went back to the hotel and got a few hours sleep, not many, but a few. We'd been in Muscle Shoals, they'd cut wild horses, brown sugar, and you got to move. And um, we were just, you know, pretty much asleep on our feet, but we did go out to Altamont and checked it out. And it seemed very nice, you know. We had no idea what was going to happen. You had no idea the night before. It seemed like a cool scene. Is that what you're saying? That this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Did you have a sense of the size of the crowd uh, that was going to be there? Because what about uh, Jesus, half yeah, million man. people showed up? Well, it was like at least three hundred thousand people. Yeah. And that night already there were like thousands and thousands of people, and you could see these bonfires you know, stretching out as far as your eyes could see. And the next day, the Hells Angels came in and everything changed. And then look, we're splitting. You know, if those cats, if you people, we're splitting, man, if those cats don't stop beating everybody up inside. I want them out of the way, man. I don't like you. You got a gun Hey, people. Hey, people. Come on, let's be cool. Greg and I have hosted a couple of screenings through the years of the documentary Gimme Shelter, and we often point out where you are sitting on one of the amps as uh, all hell begins to break loose. The stones are performing, and we see a murder before our eyes. Absolutely. Yeah, it was right in front of my face. Could the band see it as well? Did you have a sense that the band, as they were performing, could actually see what was going on? Because you see it clearly on the film, but it's unclear whether the stones actually... I would imagine they would not have continued playing had they known that someone was getting killed, or or maybe they, they did. They had no choice. Yeah. They had no choice. They did not know what had happened. I had taken Keith's acoustic guitar onto the stage. I was the first person on that stage during the Stone set, and um, this little uh, Spanish-looking Hell's Angel led me on stage, and I think it was the same guy. Uh, Meredith Hunter, this 18-year-old black man wearing a lime green suit and a black silk shirt, was standing in front of the stage. He was with a white girl named Patty Bredehoft. And, you know, angels don't like black people anyway. They kept pushing Meredith back from the stage. He finally snapped and pulled out of his jacket a nickel-plated revolver, which he didn't shoot. He didn't point it at the stage. He was pointing it up in the air. And this little angel jumps up in the air and comes down with a knife, burying it in Meredith's carotid artery. And five minutes later, Meredith was dead. But we didn't know that. Mm -hmm. They kind of dragged him behind the stage, and we couldn't see what was happening back there. You know, he he was dead. Uh, uh, Doctor later said if he got that injury on an operating table, they couldn't have saved him. Wow. How did the Hells Angels get involved in the first place? It was a free concert. And all these people have said the Stones hired the Angels as security. That is total nonsense. 
I was with the Stones before, during, and after Altamont. We never talked to the angels. That, that's completely false. But everybody believes it's true. But, um, you know, it was a free concert. People came by hundreds of thousands. Huh. Mm-hmm. But so there was no attempt to hire any sort of formal security. The angels just sort of no, showed up. and sort of. we had security. We had Tony Funches, the greatest security ever. Tony, beautiful black man, my dear friend. He was wise and kind, strong and brave. He was great. We had New York City detectives. We didn't need the angels, you know. They just came and acted like angels. Hmm. You know, it's, it's one of the enduring myths of the 60s, the end of the utopian dream six months after Woodstock, Altamont, right? But there are so many misconceptions about about that concert, Stanley, and, and yet we have great reporting like yours. Here's a, a, a footnote. None of those angels were convicted. They were all acquitted by a jury of their peers in, in a conservative county in Northern California. How, with video evidence of the murder— on- It wasn't a murder— Meredith Hunter pulled a gun. Look, if you pull a gun in front of the angels, you are going to die. And it was not a murder. It was a killing. They're different. He did the dumbest thing you can possibly do, and so he died. Mm. I'm sorry. But there there you have it. Well, from what we can gather as well, he was being threatened, and he feared for his life. No, he wasn't. He was being pushed back away from the stage, and he didn't have to pull a gun he didn't have to die. I mean, look, it, what's worth dying for, you know? Proximity to the, to the Rolling Stones is not worth dying for, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, the Rolling Stone had done a whole issue on that concert. No, they did this absolute stupid issue in, in which they blamed the Stones for all this. St- and the Stones, believe me, were doing their best. We were all doing our best, yeah. except maybe the Angels. And um, they were doing their worst, which is their usual pattern of behavior. But uh, uh, that 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 rolling issue of Rolling Stone was nonsense. But Jan Winter is an idiot. He's always been an idiot. He's always going to be an idiot. <laughs> we'll have more candid comments from Rolling Stone's biographer Stanley Booth in just a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, we've got two new records to review from rapper Lupe Fiasco and Icelandic powerhouse Bjork. Stay tuned. Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. 
Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we're joined by Stanley Booth, author of the now classic True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, which just celebrated its 30th anniversary. That song, of course, is Jumpin' Jack Flash, a version the Stones performed at Madison Square Garden in November 69 as part of their legendary American tour. Stanley, you were there that night, and you described the music of that time and that tour in great detail in your book. But you also get into these people as characters. Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Mick Taylor, Charlie Watts, and someone I've always been fascinated by, Bill Wyman. In his book, Stone Alone, Wyman actually takes credit for that Jumpin' Jack Flash riff. But tell us, what's your take on Bill Wyman? Wyman was born in 1935. I remember Mick saying on that tour, We're so old. I mean, Bill's 33. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Wyman is, he, he's, he's kind of like a dentist. Um, I mean, he, he's, um, he's real straight. He never used to even smoke dope. He did finally um, succumb to the evil weed, but um, um, yeah, he, he's a decent photographer. He's a member of the Royal Horticultural uh, Society. You know, he was like the total womanizer. He lent me his scrapbooks, and and in his scrapbooks, he kept a diary, and he would say, lost in fog. And what that meant was he had pulled some bird, and he was spending the night with her, you know. Yeah, Bill, Bill, he got to where he was really afraid to fly, and I think that's why he he left the band. Mm. Uh, I think it's the most important reason. Wow. Hadn't heard that one before, had you? No, oh, no. Sure. Well, it does, yeah, but it true. does, you know, he's the one guy that seems to indicate that, yes, you can have enough money. Because you get the impression that Jagger and Richards will continue this endeavor for perhaps for different reasons. Richards has always said, as long as Charlie's playing, he'll keep playing. But they continue and they continue and they continue playing the same 25 songs in the arenas that they've played for the last 20 years. Yeah, but listen, they know 400 songs. Oh, I know. But we never hear the ones that, you know, Cotton and I could both put together a 100-song set list, completely different, and we never hear those tunes. Yeah, I know. I'd love to hear them play play with fire, you know, or round and around, or, you know, I love those great early records they did. Yeah, 12 o'clock, yeah, the place was packed, front doors was locked, yeah, the place was packed, and when the police knocked, 
about Mick Taylor coming into this? You know, the newcomer to the band, you mentioned that Jagger was saying that they were really old. Well, Mick Taylor was really young. Wasn't he around 20 years old? He was 20 years old. Yeah. How do you handle that situation? Well, Mick was, he was quite sweet, and God knows he could play guitar. He was very likable, very easy to get along with, and uh, certainly easier to get along with than Brian ever was, and um, I hated it when he left the band. It was... um, it was a great band. I'm telling you, man, that stuff they played in 1969 was um, really breathtaking. was it about that band in particular? Because you were not particularly a fan, as I recall, uh, going into this project. Uh, you were obviously you were steeped in the blues. Uh, what was and it about? Jazz, yeah. What was it that the Stones did that sort of turned you around uh, on that tour? What did you see uh, on that stage that made you a fan of their music? Well, they were just so dedicated and very serious. We were all serious young men. And the Stones, you know, they played uh, You Got to Move, great Fred McDowell song. You know, they just had this sincerity and this uh, dedication to the blues. You know, I, I, I had to go along with them because I knew they were for real. You got to move. You got to move. You got to move, child. Well, Stanley, you uh, you stayed in Keith's orbit in particular for a good couple of years after the period chronicle. No, no, uh, till today. Oh, uh, well, that's that was my question. Are you still friendly with with Keith? The day after Keith's book, Life was published. A FedEx guy came to my door and handed me this package, and I opened it, and it was Keith's book, very sweetly and lovingly inscribed to me by Keith. And he's my brother, you know. I'm going to die loving Keith. Tell me, honey, what will I do when I'm hungry, thirsty too? That's for sure Just waiting here At your kitchen door Hey, 
What about the inscrutable other Glimmer twin? What insights did you glean from that time about Jagger that people don't understand? Well, I love Mick. Mick is um, he's a very smart, funny, good person. He really is. But, um, you know, the way we're talking now, we're just like, you know, two friends, you know. And you can sit in a room with Mick and talk to him, and he's perfectly sweet and open and honest. But if one other person comes in the room, he gets really uptight, and, you know, he's hard to talk to. And um, Alexis Corner, who gave the Stones their first professional gigs in London, one of the first uh, English blues guys, told me one day, Keith is a man of faith. Mick is a man of fear. And Mick is very, very insecure. That's certainly true. It's down to me. I think it goes back to his mother. His mother never realized what a presence and what talent Mick had. She called Alexis one time, and Alexis told me that she said, uh, we've always thought Mick was the least talented member of the family. Hmm. Hmm. And Alexis said, you know, either you, you understand that or you don't. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we're talking with music writer Stanley Booth about the Rolling Stones, and specifically their 1969 tour ending at Altamont. Stanley, you paint this image of the Stones during this tour in particular. I mean, with songs like Sympathy for the Devil, Midnight Rambler, Stray Cat Blues swirling around, these were not nice songs. And there was a sense of the the, the Stones as being kind of these, uh, you know, borderline evil characters, you know? They were a corrupting influence on rock and roll, as opposed to sort of the Beatles, who were the shiny, bright young things uh, almost to the end. The Stones had a completely different image. Did you sense them playing into that, or did they dislike that portrayal of them? They certainly must have been aware of that. Well, I think the Beatles ruined music, but um, um, uh, no, the Stones used that image. You know, look, there's only one kind of publicity, and uh, <laughs> and the Stones, you know, they saw what people were saying about them and and thinking about them. And I tell you, man, English people hated the Stones. I was driving across town with uh, London with uh, Brian one day in his roles, and these people were like bowing down in irony, you know, in sarcasm. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm sitting there with Brian with his long blonde mane, you know, and and uh, but I mean, people would see the Stones in in London, and I mean, they reacted with just utmost hostility and hatred i mean Hmm. and you know the stones what evil have they done tell me 
They drove yeah, they the ticket just, price they, for concerts up past 300 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, yeah. I mean, I remember when Ralph Gleason took him to task in San Francisco for uh, charging $7 a ticket. Yeah, uh, outrageous, yeah. What was the dynamic like between Jagger and Richards? You know, the, we constantly go back and forth in this... Uh, this power play kind of approach that has been played out in the press, maybe to exaggerated effect. I did an interview with Richards uh, 20 years ago where he referred to Jagger not by name, but kept calling Mick she throughout the interview. And you wonder how much of this yeah, was sort of playing up the rivalry. Yeah, Mick Brenda, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's the reality of that relationship? I mean, it seemed, they seemed close, thick as thieves at one minute, and the other, they couldn't stand each other. What was, what was your perception? No. When, when I was traveling with the Stones, Keith and Mick were very close. They used to go off in the bedroom together, and Keith would sit and play the guitar, and Keith would make these noises. And, and Mick somehow could understand what Keith was saying. And Keith was not speaking English. And Mick would listen to the noises Keith was making. And, you know, that's what, that's how Wild Horses got written. Wild Horses Couldn't drag me away Keith is a very strong person, and a deep person, a wise person. Mick is, um, you know, I love Mick, but Mick is, I have to say, somewhat more superficial than Keith. Yeah. The songwriting collaboration, you were witness to that as well. They went to Muscle Shoals in Alabama to record in that great studio that produced all those great soul and blues songs in the 60s and on into the 70s. And they had that great little period there where, you know, they record Wild Horses, Brown Sugar, You Got to Move, which appeared on uh, Sticky Fingers. Fingers. Right. So they do this, like, great, amazing recording session in the middle of this incredible tour. What was that recording session like at Muscle Shoals? It was really heavenly. I called my friend Jim Dickinson in Memphis, and I told him we were in Muscle Shoals and told him to come down. And he drove down from Memphis. And... um the first night of that session, we were there like three days, and the first night was You Got to Move, and then the next night, Brown Sugar, mm-hmm. and Stu pounded the piano so hard that it went wildly out of tune. And then the third night, they want to cut Wild Horses, which uh, Keith had started. And Mick took a few lines from Keith and went in the office and wrote the rest of it. And um, I was sitting on a piano bench smoking a joint with Jim. And Stu wasn't there for some reason. Stu didn't play in certain keys. He was a boogie piano player. And there were certain keys uh, he just didn't play in. And uh, apparently Wild Horses was in one of those keys. I don't know what key it was, but uh, 
they said, we need a piano player and a keyboard player. And, and Jim says, I'm a keyboard player. And we're sitting on this uh, bench together. And, and I said, there's another piano up front. It was a tack piano. Somebody put tacks in it to give it that kind of ragtime, rickety-tick sound, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and Jim said, it's got tacks in it. And I <laughs> said, I know it. And so he got up and went and sat down at the piano, and they started playing Wild Horses. And I think it's one of the most beautiful stone songs ever. We've been talking to Stanley Booth, the author of one of the great rock and roll books, The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, on its 30th anniversary edition. Stanley, it's been an honor to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, it's been my pleasure speaking with you guys, and I hope we can do it again. hear from you. What are your impressions of the Stones in that era? Did you get to see any of the infamous 1969 tour? And does the music still move you today? Call us at 888-859-1800 and we'll air your comment on the air. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX with reviews of two new albums by Bjork and Lupe Fiasco.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is the song Family from the new album by Bjork, the ninth of her solo career. It's called Vulna Cura. Greg, those words in the Latin roots are vulnus and cura. It means cure for wounds. And as you said earlier in the show, this is Bjork's heartbreak album. Let's talk a little bit about Bjork first. She's closing in on 30 years as one of the most influential artists merging pop and the electronic avant-garde. A truly extraordinary career. She began singing professionally at 11 years old when she was in elementary school in her native Reykjavik, Iceland. But she really came to international attention as a member of the Sugar Cubes, late 80s, early 90s, proto-alternative band, and then launched her solo career in 1992. She's gone in many different directions, often exploring the electronic avant-garde underground with some of the top producers in those fields, people like Nellie Hooper and Underworld and Tricky, Biophilia, that was her last big project. It really lasted for about four years as she was exploring different internet apps and digital presentations of her music. She made an IMAX film with Michelle Gondry. Like you said, it was more about presentation in some ways than music. This is a more traditional album that is taking her back to songwriting. Songwriting in particular about her split from the American multimedia artist Matthew Barney. They had a daughter together in 2002. The relationship is over and Bjork is singing from the heart about her feelings today. Let's play a song from the album. We'll come back and we'll give our opinions about the record. This is called Adam Dance by Bjork from Volnacura on Sound Opinions. That is Adam Dance from Volna Cura, the new Bjork album. 
It is a track with Anthony, the singer, a duet on the record, and you can start to hear the record come alive in these latter stages. That track is near the last third of the record. It's really a three-part song cycle. Bjork's lyrics at her most raw, unfiltered, unguarded. They're almost like diary entries. The breakup of Bjork's longtime relationship with the father of her daughter. It's almost heartbreaking at the beginning. Those first three tracks, the vulnerability there, there's still a little bit of desperation and hope in the voice that this relationship can be saved. Then the record turns with this 10-minute track called Black Lake in the middle. It's a multi-part progression from shock and sadness into anger, and the record really gets dark in those middle stages. Yeah, and it finally, sure does. And finally, at the end, she sort of starts pulling out of it. That Anthony track is an example of where the beats get a little bit more upbeat, and by the end, she's bringing all of womankind into her struggle. I really <laughs> like the way Quicksand sort of turns the personal private struggle into this universal one. The we, she sings of at the end. Every time you give up, you take away our future and my continuity and my daughters and her daughters and her daughters. I mean, we're talking about the future womanhood here at the end of the record. It's a striking moment. People may have issues with Bjork's voice. I think it's beautiful and vulnerable on this record, even when it frays and cracks, and it's very stripped down. The string arrangements, the beautiful melodies of the strings are a high point on this record. Paired with those unconventional beats, if you listen to Bjork's records, she's always worked with producers that have helped her get these kind of beats that are incredibly unconventional, Mm -hmm. a mix of electronic and organic. In this case, the beats don't sound like anything else quite out there on the landscape. She's working with this DJ, this Venezuelan UK producer named Arca. It's a wonderful record. I think it's one of Bjork's strongest records in the last decade. I'm going to give it a buy it. I agree. It is one of Bjork's best in the last decade. I think it is the best in the last decade. I do have a problem, Greg. I miss the old Bjork, who was more of a pop singer than an opera singer. You know, if you listen to Post or Debut, I miss the pop song, Bjork. You know, I think here many Bjork fans are saying that with the string arrangements versus the electronics, she's really recalling Vespertine or Homogenic. And and I'm fine with that, but her vocal style has changed. I mean, she's really doing this kind of opera thing now, and I like her voice. I just like it a little more when it wraps its way around a melody. The last third of the album, you're right, does get stronger with the melodies, does get stronger with the beats and the more optimistic vibe. It's a great record, but I wouldn't put it in Bjork's like top three, maybe maybe the top six. So I'm a buy it too. Raw chemicals, vitamins and minerals, and Vicodin with inner tubes wrapped around the arm. To see the vein like a chicken on the barn. Top cat chat, let's begin another yawn. Let's fly sausage cheese, or is it chicken palm? Roosters don't fly like boosters don't buy. So what powers cowards to get them to the top? Just to fall asleep, listen in the back. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is Mural from the new Lupe Fiasco record, Tetsuo and Youth. Fifth studio record from Lupe Fiasco, Chicago MC. His mom was a chef. His dad was a Black Panther. He grew up in a very political household in Chicago. And you can hear that influence throughout his work, both on the record and off. He rose to fame in 2006 following his debut album, Lupe Fiasco's Food and Liquor. He got three Grammy nominations for that record. His second record, The Cool, in 2007 produced a top 10 single, Superstar, and he had another top 10 hit with The Show Goes On in 2011. Food and Liquor 2, the great American rap album Part 1, released in 2012, we started to see some cracks in the armor. 
The record company wasn't getting along with Lupe. Lupe wasn't getting along with the record company. There was some question about whether that record would even come out. We had similar issues with this particular record, Tetsuo and Youth. There was some question whether it would even be released. There were some reports that a group of hackers got together and threatened his record company if they didn't release the record. Maybe coincidence or not, the record came out a few days ago. We're going to review it in a second, but let's play a track from it first. It is called Deliver from Lupe Fiasco on Sound Opinions. Hey, the sun shot, so get a gun. All in the ears of the ghetto young. Some ghetto girls, some ghetto sons. Throwing rocks at the bus of the ghetto fun. I always wonder where the ghetto from. Cause I'm from the ghetto, they never ghetto come. But you win if the bell of my ghetto rung. And if the ghetto lose, they mean the ghetto won. That's how they do the ghetto, that's how the ghetto done. They keep it there and never bring the ghetto none. We'll make the ghetto tick, make the ghetto run. We'll make the ghetto sick, make the ghetto dumb. These off that ghetto being that ghetto rum and that ghetto bass with my ghetto drums my ghetto words and these ghetto problems these ghetto subs what a piece of man don't come here no more too much dope too many on the poach so the piece of man don't approach no dope no piece of man don't come here no more too many on the block too many getting shot so the piece of man don't stop That is the song Deliver from the fifth album by Lupe Fiasco, Tetsuo and Youth. Greg, it must be said right up top, Lupe, like fellow Chicagoan, sometimes collaborator Kanye West, has a way of putting his foot in his mouth. <laughs> Lupe is now staying away from Twitter, but when he was on Twitter, he would get people mad frequently. You cannot hold that against an artist this talented. I think that his rapping style has always been so full of humor and very human references. In Mural, we heard, I mean, you ever hear another rapper reference Morocco Mole and Secret Squirrel? <laughs> and then later he's talking about Steve Urkel. That is not to say there is not depth here. That song Deliver, Greg, man, it just almost moves me to tears when he is talking about how there are parts of the west and south sides of Chicago where you can't order a pizza because the pizza delivery Mm -hmm. man is reluctant to come to your neighborhood. Right. Right. I mean – you can take a hundred tracks by Chief Keef or a gangster rapper, and you don't get a sense of what it's really like to live in a neighborhood plagued by crime, poverty, and drugs. And in that one song, Lupe is telling us, I mean, who can't relate to that? Mm-hmm. I can't get a pizza in my part of Chicago, which, you know, we take pizza seriously here. <laughs> There's that kind of depth throughout the record. It's Lupe's most autobiographical record in a sense of the trouble on the streets where he grew up. He's always been happy to talk about I was a skateboarder, I was a Star Wars fan. I think that this is a great album. It falls short from time to time musically, but he's never been stronger as a rapper. It's an enthusiastic buy it for me. And this is a great season for alternative hip hop coming on the wake of Divine Styler and the Run the Jewels record. 
Well, you're right. You're sort of pointing back to Lupe's roots here. I think in the last couple of years, Lupe has gotten this reputation of being a bit preachy on his records, pointing the finger. Some yeah. people don't like that. Well, we interviewed Why him and all he so wanted strident. to talk about was Howard Zinn. Yes. I mean, and you know, the guy is politically motivated. I mean, he's spoken out outside of the records about his views in politics and not everybody agrees with him. Yeah. And more power to him for standing up for what he believes in. But on this record, he raises more questions than so much answering them. It's not about like, I have all the answers, but I'm raising these questions about how I grew up, the world I'm living in right now. And the poetry in these lyrics is beautiful. Beautiful. At the same time, the density of the rhymes is incredible. Just mm. the way the words sound and the way he puts them together, it's stuff that you see on the page and you go, oh my God, you know, what a great way of putting together words just for the way they sound. You know, Sanskrit dance on the page of the dead book. You know, I, mm. I'm not even sure what that means, but it sounds, sounds fantastic, good. Yeah. you know. And lyrically, the density of the rhymes matched by the adventurousness on the music. Lupe has never really gotten his due within the hardcore hip-hop area because he experiments outside the margins. I mean, you've got a freaking banjo on this record, you yeah, know? Yeah. He's talking about violins. He's got a lot of upright bass. He's always loved those kind of jazzy rhythms as opposed to the hard-hitting four-on-the-floor beats that have driven hip-hop since the beginning of time. So again, not a conventional hip-hop record, but a Lupe Fiasco record. And I would consider this the best record since that debut that Lupe has put mm. out. I hope people don't write this record off, even though the public may have done so a couple of years ago. This is a buy-it record for me. So that's two buy-its for the new albums by Bjork and Lupe Fiasco. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to have songs about secret love affairs just in time for Valentine's Day. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, Evan Chung, and our intern, Alex Claiborne. And it's brought to you in part by the generous support of the Walter and Carla Goldschmidt Foundation. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Operator, but could you help me place this car? I can't read the number that you just gave me. New messages. In my eyes. Hi, this is Jessica from the suburbs of Chicago. I was just listening to your strange bedfellows show, and I would like to add what I think is a strange collaboration that works to your list. The song is Portland, Oregon by Loretta Lynn and Jack White. Well, Portland, Oregon and slow gin biz. If that ain't love, then tell me what is a When I think of Loretta Lynn, I think backwoods of Virginia, squirrel-eaten, coal miner daughter, country music, and here's Jack White, rock guitar god, and two people at opposite ends of the music spectrum, yet this song works just wonderfully for both of them, and I think that it's just an oddly magnificent duo. Thanks a lot, and love your show. Hey, Sound Opinions, it's Joe calling from San Diego, uh, calling about your Strange Bedfellows episode. I got a great one for you. 
in the mid-70s, Bette Midler duetted with Bob Dylan on his song, Buckets of Rain. And what's most surprising of all about this duet is that it actually sounds really, really good. Who would have thought two strange bedfellows would make such beautiful music together? I like your smile and your fingertips. I like the way that you move your lips. I like the heavenly way you look at me. Love the show. Listening to the show on mashups and reminded me of Mark Lincos and Daniel Johnston on the Fear Yourself album. Despite the indie rock lore and admiration that all those types of had for Daniel Johnson, the high level of production quality on all the Sparkle Horse stuff just was so bizarre to hear a Daniel Johnson record brought up to that level. And I still don't even know if I like it. It was just very interesting and different and unexpected. So that's my submission. Thanks. Hey guys, this is Aaron Franco in Dallas, Texas, calling about your review of the Slater Kenny album. I am a big fan, respect you guys, your judgment so much. I think you got it wrong on the Slater Kenny album. Not only should it be a buy it, there should add a bow before it option. Tucker has said this before, or I think it was Carrie Brownstein, she said, you know, we don't want to blend into the background. The fact that the vocals turn some people off, that they are, are grating to some people, that's the point. Corn Tucker could obviously tone it down, sing in a different style, but the fact that she can belt it out, and almost every song does belt it out, says so much about that integrity and the credibility behind their music. I love this new album. I've been a fan my whole life. Don't have a Slater Kenny tattoo. But I'm one of those devotees, and I would love it if you gave it another chance. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.